if he's got somebody coming on some sort of podcast, radio show, whatever, TV show, chat about mental health, and then you ask them, okay, so what have you ex- experienced yourself in your life? They just go, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Well, yeah, the hell you doing? Chat about it, Dan. Yeah, and ladies and gentlemen, on that note, welcome to episode four of T Dog Talks. Today's uh, today's guest is a very good friend of mine, a guy I've known for a couple of years now. He is a sports psychologist with rugby teams, football teams, and individual sport athletes such as tennis athletes around the world. Uh, it's Mr. Paddy Donnelly. Paddy, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, hello. It's it's, it's grand to meet uh, to 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 chat to everybody. Uh, grand to be chatting to Tiernan again. To be honest, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a it's long way. T- it's been too long. It's been too long. We're gonna have to sort something out soon. But exactly, I, it's yeah. it's grand to be chatting it again, and it, it's even better to be to be chatting about this sort of thing and and chatting in this area. Um. No, just to start off. Um. How did you? You're now a sports psychologist. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a performance psychologist currently. Uh, the term sports psychologist is something I'm working towards, but for the now, I'm actually just a performance psychologist. Okay, what is the difference between a performance psychologist and a sports psychologist? Mainly just the name, to be honest. Oh, okay. um, well, sports psychologist is like a protected term. I won't go into too much detail about that because that's not what we're here to be chatting about. But yeah. um, So I, I did my master's last year in sport and psychology. Um, so I basically spent a year learning all the theory and uh, learning kind of all the information from some of the best in the field uh, in the realm of sport and exopsychology. And I'm using that now to go out into the world and bring that information to sports teams and individuals from, as you said, anyone from tennis teams to powerlifters, to horse riders, to American football players. Now, um, just as you mentioned, how many sports teams and individuals do you currently work with at the moment? I'm currently working with about um, about ten different either teams or individuals, uh, kind of providing them with the psychological support for their particular field of performance. Yeah, and that varies from sports such as powerlifting to tennis to rugby to football. Is there oh, I can. Or is it just them? Uh, tennis, rugby, football, horse riding. Uh, horse riding. Yeah. I'm also doing. A, I'm also uh, trying to get a bit of work with a, with a legal firm to give them a bit of information on mental health, and uh, I work with I work with a school netball team. I, I really try and keep my range as broad as possible because this is the sort of information, the sort of need that lots of people don't realize they need until they have it, and then yes. like, the more they invest in it, the more they realize how useful and how important this sort of thing is. Because when an individual. Uh, watches a sport and on, you don't actually take into effect how much that sport plays upon their mental health. It, it's a very sorry, you... I, uh, but it, it's a very well known statement yeah. that uh, competition is 90% mental and the rest of it is yeah. all in your head. So, uh, how an athlete's mindset and mental state is on the day of competition has a significantly more important effect upon them than diet, than training, than anything else. Is it in the same terms as like strength and conditioning sort of thing, where you have to have that athlete at peak, so you need that athlete at peak mental state for the competition? Is that something you work towards for the competition? Oh, I definitely ha- having an athlete in the kind of in the correct mindset for for whatever competition, whether it's it's an American football game, a rugby tournament, or a powerlifting competition. You need the athlete in the best mental state possible, or else their performance will just completely dive. And the irony is that there's a massive paradox currently in kind of sports psychology where 
everyone's fully aware of the importance of mindset and mental state for competition, but there is an aggressive lack of any form of mental training for it. Yeah. Like if, uh, I'm sure plenty of people who listen to this podcast, I'm assuming quite a few of them are fairly sporty in some regards. I'd like them to take a second just to think of how, how much actual kind of mental preparation they have they not only have for their sporting competitions, but they've been taught over the years beyond something like just your coach's pre-game speech, everyone sitting in the chain with headphones on and that one, there's always that one fella at the start of every game who just goes, let's go! And that's it. Yeah. As, as far as actual effective mental training, there is a distinct lack of it in the sporting community. And that's not just at lower levels, like, you know, what you and me used to play, like even at top level sports, there can be a significant lack in the kind of mental support and mental training required. Yeah, just as you say that, there was um, a footballer not that long ago who um, is in the Premier League. I don't know if you know him, Aaron Lennon. Is, is he the one who, I think I read the, an article on this, and it, it basically got out there how horrendously prevalent uh, kind of mental health issues and mental disorders are in top-level sports. Yes, like he said how football got him out of the, the dark space, but then got him back into the dark space. He was on because he was getting no help. Oh, I, I think not just... There's also, I mean, there's huge expectation on these athletes to perform at the highest level. And what is expected of them is is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, as far as, as far as the normal person, when we look at sport, we think, well, why is this person complaining? They get to do their hobby every day and they get paid a stupid amount of money for it. I don't get why they're yes. complaining about X, Y, or Z, but we don't have to deal with the huge amount of pressure that comes with doing your job, essentially. None of us have to walk out into a stadium full of anywhere from thirty to 60,000 people and have to just do our job. Most people genuinely have... Well, I feel like most people would happily admit that one of their main fears in life is public speaking and having to perform in front of an audience. And so imagine yes. doing that in a stadium full of people where no matter where you look, there are people. There are people watching it on a on a weekly basis as well. And oh, if you right. do one mistake wrong, you'll get slated for it on social exactly. media. Exactly. That's that's something I think came up in in that article that you can get a, you, you can get feedback from the public over social media within nanoseconds of a bad performance. So if if, yeah. an, if an Olympic athlete you know messes up during the sport, say a hundred meter sprinter trips and doesn't doesn't get the pole position that they actually wanted, just think of how many potential like fans. And supporters can go on social media, get out Twitter, and tell them your shit. Yeah, that again is comes down to the mental health of the athletes. Then I will be sh- shattered. In a oh, I your mental health shattered. You su- let everybody. Uh, your support's gone, and all the fans who used to love you and used to be, you know, the ones that you thank all the time for for getting you there. Suddenly, they're all turned against you. I mean, yeah. I myself panic when just one person's not happy with me. I can't imagine what it'd be like with 10,000 people calling me a prick. Yeah, no. I can barely get past 10. And trust me, I've had 10 people call me a prick. At the same time. <laughs> at, the, at the same time. At the same time. <laughs> that, was, that was just training with the Titans, to be honest. <laughs> I think I was one of them. <laughs> I feel like it was very well-deserved, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Um... The topic I really wanted to touch on, um, now, everybody knows that to be in the field that you're in through sports psychology and through performance psychologist, you need to have to go through 
a state of me- a bad mental health yourself and get through it on the other side to be able to teach others? It helps definitely. I don't. I don't think it's it's a it's a standard requirement. I, I don't remember at any point doing my master. They went right. So what's fucked up with you then? Sadly, that never turned up. I mean, that would have been hilarious if that had happened. But I, I get just, I get what you mean. Like you can't really talk too much about about mental health, the treatment side, how it affects the individual without having some experience yourself. And I feel like you're where you're getting at is is yeah. I've had some fairly significant uh, run-ins with negative mental health and. I'll be honest. And that is I'm still very glad to get up the other side. Aye, that's true. So um, that's exactly what I want to touch on. How or where did it start for me? Oh, I feel like it started a long time before anything really came to a head. Like I, I'd not had a good time in school as as a way in. To be honest, I, I was a very small, skinny kid, not very popular, and just kind of years of 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 exclusion and bullying and stuff like that just built up more and more over time. But when it really came to a head was in my last year of university where I took a proper deep dive and had to, had to go kind of get student, had to get like student support, had to go and um, be in contact with the kind of the NHS crisis team of my local hospital who would come in and actually visit me in my house like once every two weeks or something just to check up on me and see if I was doing okay. And uh, yeah, I, I got diagnosed with depression at the time uh, with suicidal tendencies. Um, through that then, how do you, you said it came about in their last year's university, and that year you were studying sports psychology or performance psychology, I should say. I uh, know that that was in my undergrad when I was just doing straight psychology before I started my master's. Did you think studying it has had an effect? I definitely, on what you went I definitely do. Like lear- learning more about how the brain works and how human behavior is, it definitely gave me a lot more insight into what was going on with myself. And that's actually why I started doing psychology in the first place. I, I got into doing it because I had a lot of questions about, about myself. And I had a lot of kind of, I, I was wondering a lot about why I did the things I did, why I thought the ways I did, and kind of what was causing different things to happen to me. And kind of the yeah. more I learned, the more, one, I discovered that I didn't care too much about why I behaved the way I did, because it turns out that was just me. And two, I kind of fell more in love with the discipline and, and enjoyed learning more about just how people in general work, how the brain itself works, and all the properly weird case studies you, you, you find out with, to be honest. But yeah, it, it was a very interesting, very interesting experience learning more about how we work and how I worked. And it really kind of helped get me through a lot of harder times and helped me kind of build up better coping mechanisms and a better understanding of, of how to get through the tougher times. Um, you just mentioned coping mechanisms. What sort of coping mechanisms did you, as yourself, use to get through it? Uh, well, at the time I had, I had a couple of good coping mechanisms and I had a couple of bad coping mechanisms. And the important thing was working out which ones were which and which ones to really double down on and put the work into. And the ones yeah. to stop doing and cut out my life. So at the time, I was, I was a very, very active person, not just in the gym, but I, I was in about two or three sports teams at that time. Uh, and they, they were my good coping mechanisms. Uh, well, one of them wasn't as good as coping mechanism the other, but they, they provided good support. They provided a lot of things that I needed to help me get through a lot of, tar- a, a lot of the darker times. But on the other side, I was also self-medicating with I was drinking heavily. Uh, I was smoking. I was, you know, I, I really kind of, 
double down on anything that helped me kind of escape from being me and distract me from the things that were going on with me. And because yeah. of that, like it took a long time to realize that these behaviors aren't good and these behaviors should not be done. And looking back now, it's thing, things I, I should have known already and things I should have been able to identify myself being like, this is not something you should be doing. But at the time, I didn't care. At the time, I, I, one, I didn't want to be me. Two, I didn't care about myself at all. So if someone, if someone had come up to me and said, Paddy, you know that drinking the amount that you're doing and smoking as much as you are, you're not going to be doing your body much good. I'd have turned around and told them to fuck off because I didn't care. I, I honest to God, had yeah. no interest in looking after and preserving my, myself. And so looking back now, you know, I've, hopefully I've managed to undo quite a lot of damage that I did to myself. Um, and I'm a much better, much healthier person for it. And I've shed so many of those worse kind of uh, habits that, that you can develop in these things. But it was at the time, just you, you didn't have much of a care for it. And that's, that's one of the things that depression does to you. It really stops you from caring about yourself. The one of things that when people suffer from depression is the one or two roads that they go down is drinking drugs. That seems to be a big anyone who suffers from mental health, that's sort of the I'm not saying a hundred percent of the people go down that route, but I would say majority, about sixty, seventy percent people who suffer from mental health, their their coping mechanism would be going to do drugs or going to have a few drinks every day. I know. Um Again, like you said, like different people, they react in different ways. They, they develop different coping mechanisms. Uh, but I drink and drugs is a fairly regular one. I think it, uh, again, this is just a personal theory, but I think it's, it's due to a feeling of escapism. That if, if you, like, as, as we've all known, you have a couple of drinks and you stop being your normal neurotic self. That's how quite a few lads find the courage to go and chat up girls in a bar. That's how a few of us find the balls to go up and attempt karaoke despite the fact that we really shouldn't be doing karaoke and it, it, it's yeah. how we get the balls to think you know what I think I can dance right now so imagine, imagine being able to get that feeling but instead of thinking instead of thinking I'd give that girl a wee line or two you start thinking oh I'm not feeling myself anymore I don't feel neurotic I don't feel sad I don't feel empty anymore I feel drunk or I feel high. Yeah. Or I, it, it, it's a method of, of escaping from yourself. And it's a, very, it's a very easy and very accessible way of doing it. And I think personally, that's why I think it might be a more regular thing among people suffering from mental health issues. But also it's a form of self-harm. And it, it, it's a less talked about form of self-harm because when people think of self-harm, they think of, you know, hiding in a bathroom somewhere with a razor blade, drawing lines on your wrist and, you know, just trying to, you know, hurt yourself in that way. But that's not always a form of self-harm. Self-harm can stretch itself anywhere from kind of cutting and hurting yourself to excessive drinking, excessive smoking, drugs, uh, unprotected sexual behavior, things like anything that could be obviously perceived as harmful to yourself is a form of self-harm. Yeah. yeah. And this is something, yeah, yeah this that. is something that I learned when, so I, I since going through my own issues and going through my own troubles I've done as much as I can to try and uh, improve my understanding of mental health and to kind of better prepare myself uh, in order to help people with mental health issues including uh, in the last few months I did a mental health awareness course for, uh, for people in sport and exercise and also did a an adult mental health first aider course which was a very fun two days 
with a very interesting group of people, but I learned so much about things like that. And one of the things they brought up was how yeah. self-harm isn't just razor blades and feeling sad. It's also heavy drinking, drugs, and sleeping with anything that comes near you. Shit. Yeah. Damn. Yep. Like, I, I was going to ask questions for you, but I think you kind of summed up perfectly what the use of um, self-harm, I would say, with on sport. It's not just what people think. It's anything that can cause harm to yourself, like drink, drugs, all that. Sometimes there. it can even be excessive exercise. That's how you, that's um that, that's more common with people with eating disorders that they they physically push themselves to intense limits and push through those limits. But it's it's not it's not for the personal gain of I want to feel better from the exercise or I want to become a better sprinter. Or I want to be a stronger fella. It's I want to go to the gym for the next six hours of this day, which I've done every day for the last seven months and i just want to i just yeah. want to abuse the crap out of myself i want to really make myself hurt but i don't want to be me i just i just want to look in the mirror at, at, after i'm done with it and feel like you've been worked i want to feel like the person i'm looking at has done it they've suffered it through and that it should be worth it have you done that before uh no actually luckily my my experience and my kind of relationship with physical exercise has stayed relatively healthy and the lot yeah. like as far as like excessively long gym sessions um i mean i I've, I've got friends who've got their own views on how long i spend in the gym but i think i think i'm currently at, at at my longest gym sessions at this point in my life but it's not a form of escapism it's just because that's that's how i'm training and i'm really putting kind of my my, my, per, my personal training as, as as well as i can but it, it's all for personally my american football at this point in time I want to be, you know, be stronger and faster and perform better. It's not for abusive yeah. reasons. Yeah, that's right. Because I do know you, you have a, I was going to say a match tomorrow, but about the time this uh, podcast up, you won't have a match tomorrow. So I know you're training specifically for a sport, but how do you feel that sport um, helps you in a way with your, with your own mental health to be a part of a society or a community, I should say? And what you feel accepted? I think being part of a sports team is a really, really beneficial method of helping people get through mental health issues. Um, I don't know. Have you heard of the um, the lift and the leg campaign that's currently going through American football? I haven't. That's something that is. Uh, so m- my team has just uh, just joined it recently, and we did a promotional video for it. Um, oh yeah, I did see the video. Aye, well that's um, that's promoting. You know. Uh, being more open and being more accepting of, of discussing mental health issues in American football and encouraging teammates to be as supportive and as open as possible to other members of their team to in, in, encourage people to start talking about it to help break down the stigma that we've currently got with mental health issues and that's yeah I did see the video that you put up about it I see, and that's, that's good that uh, is, it your, uh, is it the American football team that's Aye, as it's, hopped on board, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's the Somerset Wyverns, which is shameless plugging, but uh, that it it it's a fairly regular thing. A lot of teams are doing it nowadays, um, but it it it's it's very it's you can tell the team they're doing it. They've normally got a wee helmet sticker, which is uh, it says "I'm fine" on it with a little um little hand signal with cross fingers, you know, implying that you know a lot of people, if you ask them how they're doing, they'll just go with the standard "I'm fine," but they're lying to you because they're not sometimes. Yeah. Also with a lovely big T-shirt with the same logo on it, but it, it the aim of it is to help encourage people 
to feel more secure talking about these sort of things. And I mean, my team does get the advantage of having, you know, a psychologist on the team. Me. But yeah, I, that was mine. I was just going to hop on there next. Um, now, what that American football team you're with, you are a sports psychologist for their I, team. I am the team psychologist, I. Do you feel a lot of people come to you with on the team to talk about the problems? Uh, now, now more that you are getting behind this campaign than there would have been before? That would depend on how many fellas beforehand thought they may have had mental health issues or thought that their existing coping mechanisms aren't quite covering it. So when it comes yeah, to mental health issues, what's more important than a diagnosis of a mental health condition is about the individual's coping mechanisms. If an individual has a good either support network or personal mechanisms designed to help them get, get through tougher times, then they should be all right. Even if they get you know a very harsh diagnosis of you might have depression, if they have a good support network and coping system, then they're going to be significantly better off than an individual who may not have a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, or an eating disorder, or psychosis. But if, if their coping mechanisms aren't up to scratch, then they're going to struggle. And that's not their fault. Because again, this is something we're not taught about. This is something that we're not given much information for about how to effectively deal with mental issues. Yeah, um, your team, I know I'm going back to the, the American football not team again. Enough. Do you have the... Uh the sports psychologist on the team, or sorry, performance psychologist, I keep saying sports psychologist, on the team as yourself, are you the only team in the league that's getting behind this campaign and that has employed a performance psychologist? I know that we're not the only team in the league who is behind this campaign, but to my knowledge, I don't know of any other American football team that has a team psychologist. The, the next team I can think of that is coming closer to having a psychologist is the is one of the GB Lions teams, and that's a big step up. It's a massive step up, especially because it, it it could also be me who's that who's a psychologist as well. Yeah. Yep. So I I'm yeah, slightly I the uh, the main name in sports psychology, well, sport and performance psychology in British American football. Shit. It's very exciting. So... It's 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 a fun job. I'll be honest. You have you have came a long way. <laughs> I have kind of since the last time that we we <laughs> sat down. The this one was the last time. <laughs> I last last time you saw me, I was a security guard on the Northern Irish border. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what okay. a lovely job that was! So so grand yeah, that I um, quit and caused my manager to get fired. Let's not talk about I that. Hear the, he's um, a bollocks um, anyway. <laughs> I want to talk to uh, about a year or two before that when you were going for your postgraduate, your masters I believe it was, you took a break then to come and get, just get any job that you could have Aye, yeah so, so between, my, uh, between my undergraduate and my, my postgraduate I, yeah, I, I took a year out and moved to Northern Ireland to, to well just for a job and to get a wee bit of life experience and how do you think that has, that helped you? Because I know the job you were in wasn't really the most beneficial <laughs> job to your um, skill to set. Your, um, skill set. Yes. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that was um, that was a very interesting job because what it did is so I came, I I came to Ireland, not in the best mental state possible because I'd literally just finished that 
big year where a lot happened and my mental health just took a hell of a dive during it. Just just to jump on here, were you advised after that bad year that you had due to mental health, were you advised from people to take a year out and go somewhere to get your life experience or was it something that you decided that you had to do for yourself, for your own mental I health? I had to do myself for my own mental health. I had to get out of that situation that I had been in. I didn't want to sit at home on the sofa with my family because that would have been even worse for me. I needed to get out in the world and I needed to do something with myself. And so that was what that job was for me. It gave me an opportunity to to, to get out and also to rebuild myself a little bit because I, I, came, I came to one as a fairly broken man and it took a long time for me to build up again who I was based off of parts of who I was beforehand and kind of build up and develop new parts of who I was. And so I think by the first time you met me was kind of when I was first properly reassembling myself and kind of kind of getting to grips as to who who I was and who who I was becoming and that, that wasn't really something that you could have really talked about either when you first met people when you first joined the team no I, I wasn't I wasn't something you could have opened up about there and then at the time no I, th- I think at the time it was I mean I was fairly new to the team and everything but I it wasn't something I was, I was prepared to talk about yet because it's not something I'd, I hadn't finished it yet and I wasn't quite I wasn't quite uh, through to the end oh, but also I, yeah you weren't quite over the finish line just not yet. quite but also I think I was still getting to know everybody and learning who everyone was and what we were all doing and I think it would have been a little bit much if first training session when we got the other guy and Paddy and holy fuck am I messed up in the head <laughs> yeah that would have been a bad start <laughs> don't think I'd have got but a starting I, I, position I, from that one <laughs> but I think it was a point until after I wasn't until after you left like I say, we were close when you were at the team, and we had a good laugh every t- every session, and even outside sessions and all. But I think it was more the fact after you left, you kind of opened up then, after you kind of left Ireland to come over here. Ah, yeah, I think I was because the, the, doing the sports psychology thing really helped kind of unlock a lot more about who I was and helped me get a lot more comfortable talking about these sort of things, especially kind of learning. Yeah so much more about how because i mean my, my undergrad taught me quite a lot about how how you know psychology works but it's when i did my master's when we really got down in the trenches and learned all the really kind of exciting stuff but also learned a lot more about how these things can affect different people and how they can really kind of mess people up in some of the worst ways there's um just as you say mess people up in certain ways there's um a couple of things I want to touch on, like the common psycholo- psychological, mm-hmm. psychological, yes, skills, like in the field of sports. Like you talk about your goal setting, your team building, your self talk. Is that something that you use yourself? You have used yourself, or is that something you use now in your athletes? I, I I use it both with myself and with my clients. I don't think that like I don't recommend anything that I actually haven't tried out myself because like yeah. it it does like you can't really sell anything to anybody else if they don't believe that you believe in it and the best way to believe in what you preach is to try and practice so things like self-talk mental imagery goal setting you know all all the psychological tools that i i have at my disposal for my clients they're all things that i bring you know to myself and to my own training regimes i've also spent like a lot of time researching things like mental resilience and mindfulness and they're all things that i do bring into my personal life in order to make myself just a better better person in general and being able to cope with just kind of life in general better but also it means that when i when i go to my clients and tell them right you need to be trying to do this you need to be trying out this you you should be doing this i can come at it from a from an actual point of conviction and say no this this works 
and I know it works because I do it. Yeah, but in the same sense, I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be for you. Come on here, and just for me to slate you down. But um, and in one sense, if it works for you, it doesn't really mean it's going to work for someone else. If you know what I mean. No, no, of course not. That 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 is also a, a very important part of what I do. It's it's each person is an individual. Like, yeah. yeah. Again, at the end of the day, they're, they're a person, and it, you you cannot claim that one person is exactly like another person. And so yeah. the thing that I recommend, I always tell people like you know this is something that I found works for me. But whenever I assign somebody a psychological intervention or we, we write up, we plan about things to try, things to, to work on, uh, I recommend a few things to try out. My first point is always, right, we're going to meet again in a week and a half time or two weeks time or a month's time when you've had time to practice this a few times. And you can then tell me what did work and what didn't work. And we will, we, we will narrow this down. We'll filter out the shite and we'll put in the good stuff and make sure that what, what you're doing is the best thing for you. Yeah. Tre- treating every, if, if I just went up to every client I had, and, right, what are you going to do? Right, you're going to start with, you're going to do some breathing. Aye. Then you're going to do some mental imagery. Aye. Set some goals for the game. Aye. And then what else? <laughs> I usually tell people to listen to this kind of music. Right off you go. That's your plan done. Don't talk to me again. That wouldn't work and I'd never get any more business. But also, that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't also reflect so much of my job because part of my job is, you know, it is working with the individual. And it's making sure that every person, when they step out on, on whether it's the football field or it's a, a powerlifting competition, setting out on the platform or getting onto the tennis court, I need to know that what they're doing is the best thing for them and that they're, they're doing the best that they can be because we've established what works, what their brain needs and how they behave best in these situations. Yeah, that's a pretty good answer. I don't think I can fault anything in what you said. But... um. <laughs> It's like, for me, you did touch upon it there, is like, listen to music. That's the way that I feel that my coping mechanism is. Like, I, just in Spotify last year, I can't remember how many hours, but I think it was a total of like 20 something full days in a year. <laughs> wow. I've listened to music. Because that's the way I escape from everything. When I go training, I used to go to the gym. Now my course is more gym-based. But I used to go to the gym, and as soon as I put my headphones on, I would escape the reality of what I loved them. Oh, I you know, I agree. And, like, I mean, you, you, you've you seen my gym kit and everything, and I, I have. Yeah. I, I've got my, you know, big Beats headphones that I, I bought myself as a Christmas present when I was in Ireland as a way of kind of me promising myself that that was me taking my gym more seriously. And they're, like, yeah. wireless, so I could leave my phone in my bag, and that was it. It was never a distraction anymore. It was just me and the music. And I do think yeah. that music is a very effective coping mechanism. And it really does help a lot of people, not just with sport and performance, but also getting through tougher times. And I, I, again, the concept of music psychology is, is a really, really complicated field because it's, it's so heavily based in the individual and, and based off of their own individual preferences. But I think it's things like, like when you listen, sometimes people feel better when they listen to sad music when they're going through a tough time. And normally you'd think that'd be the opposite. Like if you listen to sad music when you're sad, you should feel sadder, but you don't. Yes. You often feel better. Yeah, like I know for myself because I have one of my playlists on uh, Spotify as full of like, um, I'm not going to say sad music, but like emotional songs from big artists where the lyrics, mm-hmm. like uh, song, singer-songwriters such as Johnny Lucas and all, that's people I listened to like albums from two, three years ago where the album was kind of based on making you feel better as a person, but it also touched on the 
um, the mental health study. So when like that's the type of music I listen to when I'm feeling that sort of way. But when I train, I listen to sort of. I, I was going to phrase it a different way. I listen to some very ghetto music, I should say. I'd say more upbeat. Yeah, so that's a word. More upbeat and, and hype, <laughs> hype and pump music, I think is the, yes. uh, is the yeah, politically correct phrase for that one. Yes, that, that's what I listen to when I train. But when I'm feeling down, I listen to some sad music, you can't say. No, I, but I feel like that, that's, a, that's the type of music that helps me. No, I agree. What I go and actually, like, I, I'm the same. I have different music for when I'm driving. I have different music for when I'm lifting. I have different music when I'm feeling sad, when I'm feeling happy, if I'm driving in a bad mood, if I'm driving in a happy mood. Because there's a, there's a very empathetic nature to music. And there's something very comforting, I think, about listening to music that reflects your emotional state. That yeah. feeling that you're not so alone in feeling that way because somebody else has felt that way. And they, they can... We're not... It's it's not just, you know, you can relate to how they feel, but almost it feels like they're relating to how you feel. And they're put yes. they're putting feelings into words that you haven't thought of those words yet or you haven't been able to say, Oh that no, that is how I feel. But this person has, you know, managed to, to lyrically create it in the right sense and then put the right music to it as well that makes you go, Yeah, no, I'm 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 not alone in feeling this way. And I think that does touch on on a whole different area in how as as a society we're we're really kind of shunning away from the concept of having emotions and actually feeling like people, which I think we're yes. slow we're slowly working towards more. But I mean, just just in my work alone, ranging from my own clients to people in my own personal life, I'm finding there's a there's a serious issue with people feeling very worried and very nervous about feeling even any emotions too strongly, but definitely negative emotions. We're very much taught that feeling sad and crying are not, you know, are not desirable things to be doing and that we should not be doing them. And the, the more reality thing is, it's an important part of human emotional processing. If somebody feels sad, then they want to cry and they should cry because that's how you process a very negative emotion. But the yeah. more we intentionally stunt ourselves and the more we don't let ourselves properly, you know, go through with the process and properly deal with these things, the more we find ourselves in emotional distress. I feel like as a society, we're kind of pushing people away, as you say, about feeling the, the way that they want to feel. For example, like if someone's feeling sad, as a society, we're like, I don't want to say we're taught, but like we're showed the way that we're not meant to speak up about our emotions. And I feel like that's a lot where suicide and all comes into effect, that people feel like they can't talk to nobody. I definitely, definitely men have this issue a lot because... um. Uh, one thing I did learn from this uh, from the mental health first aid course is that uh, women rotate, like have significantly higher rates of diagnosis for mental health conditions, but men have significantly higher suicide rates than women. Like it is over three times more men commit suicide per year than women, and that's um, and that's not a case of men are better at it. It's a case of the women tend to have better coping mechanisms in general they have better support structures and it's less a case of uh it's less a case of just men are not men just commit suicide more men have this, probably the same number of of diagnosable mental health conditions but we just don't talk about them we don't seek the help that we need we don't tell our mates that we're having a bad time because no one's going to the pub and sit down and go lads you know what it's just not been a good few months for me 
because at that point, you know, we're worried that our mate's going to turn around and go, don't be such a fanny, have a pint and man up. We're all, yeah. too, we're all too scared of what the reaction might be to tell other people that we can't cope. And it's not just in our personal lives. We're worried about showing weakness at work. I've got friends who are currently trying to get into really tough, really high-end jobs, and they're, they're doing what they can to try and get the training contract just to get their foot in the door. And it's putting them through the ring. Like they're really having to suffer, really having to struggle, not just physically, but mentally for these, for these positions and for these opportunities. And it's meaning that they're terrified of showing like they're struggling. They're absolutely breaking it to look like they're human at all and to, to, to have a breaking point or a limit that they can't go past. Because they're worried that if you look like there's something you can't do, somebody else will step up and go, nope, I can do that. I, I, I can go above and beyond. I, I, can, I can put in even more work. I can do the grain better. And next thing you know, you'll be out the job or you'll be missed your opportunity. Is that someone as a performance analysis and sports psychologist that you see among people that we don't see as a society because you're trained in that department, I should say? Is that something that you pick up on, like people, the way people react to situations? I think it's something that I'm more aware of. Like, I, I yeah. know the signs a wee bit better. It's not, this isn't something that I, I have a magical power that other people don't. This is all yeah. information that people are regularly telegraphing all of this information to everybody around them. It's just, you know, I, I've had that little bit more kind of theoretical backup and a wee bit more deliberate experience in this particular field. I've, I've actually had more time like deliberately looking out for this sort of thing, which means that I, I can see when somebody is taking a little bit more time to to properly get over things. They're using different language to describe how they're feeling or describing how they're reacting to certain things. And it just means that that little switch in my brain flicks a wee bit quicker and I start going, OK, so something's more than just up here. Yeah, see if someone came to you. For an, I'll use myself as an example, but say if someone listening or someone on your team or athlete came to you and said, Paddy, I'm struggling with this, what steps would you take in order to help this person out? Well, so, um, so, so with the mental health first aid thing, you know how in medical first aid you have the uh, doctor ABC for approaching an yeah. injured person? Yeah. In mental health first aid, we have, it's called ALGI. So A-L-G-E-E, and that's, that's okay. our action plan for approaching somebody with mental health issues. Now, in, this, okay. in the scenario you've given me, we can cross out the first one because I don't need to approach this person. They've come to me, which okay. first, I which guess first sign is ideal. I, okay. I know, really complicated system, isn't it? But um, I, so first of all, if somebody came to me and said, look, I'm struggling with Say, say for example I'm having a bit of trouble like with an eating disorder Yeah. if that was the example we're going to use my first thing okay. as in just as a personal thing would be to congratulate them for having the courage to come forward and talk about it and I think okay. that's a very important step because I think acknowledging people for when they've actually done something well even when they don't think it's the right thing to do just because of either how the condition has them feeling or how they just or their general stigma towards mental health I think encouraging people when they do come forward that it's the right thing to do and they, they've done well. I think that's important, step one. Step two is to listen. It's, it, it sounds very simple, but that's just it. Just sit them down, give an opportunity in a safe environment, like away from other people or where other people aren't going to hear them and let them talk about it. Like let them really go into detail as much as they feel comfortable discussing how they're feeling and how, how 
what around them is making them feel that way and how just they feel so, about sorry it. to interrupt you, Paddy, but see way there that you said that uh hope they'll open up and tell you as much as they want. What if you know that they're not telling you the full story? What steps would you take then? They help them out in terms of telling a full story? Because I know um, from a male's perspective, it's a lot of what males do. They might hint that they're struggling with them, but they won't open up and tell the full story. You've got to be very careful with that. So if somebody seems like they're talking, like they're not telling you the full picture, one, you've got to be as, you've got to be as unjudgmental as possible. Like there will be a reason they're not telling you. And so you've got to be very careful if you want to try and tease it out of them. Again, you're not trying to deliberately do it. You're not trying to look like you're attacking them. The important yeah. part is encouraging them that you're there to help and that you're there for the best, like to help them in the best way that you can. If they're starting to hint at things, then if you can pick up on the fact that that there's a bit of a hint there going on, so they're saying like, you know, I don't like if, if they're saying very light stuff like um, like, you know, just for some reason, you know, I, I just you know, I just can't keep food. I'm not sure why. You just have to then very carefully pick up on the little hints and see if you can get them to to expand upon them but in their own time so at that point you pick up and then go i so so you're saying you're struggling to keep keep your food down so would you know would you care to kind of maybe elaborate a wee bit on that more if if you're comfortable again it's, it's all about keeping them comfortable and it's all about making them feel safe and secure yeah but if somebody's Uh, if somebody's not willing to talk about something you cannot push them because they've already made a very huge step in coming forward and coming to you, or in the case you've had to approach them, you've kind of, they, if they're letting you in, you've got to, if, if they give you an inch, you've just got to use it as a mile. You, you can't pull anything more out of them. You can't force them to talk about anything that they don't feel 100% comfortable talking about. Because what you'll do is you'll cause them to panic, you'll cause them to close up, and you could cause them to just not want to get any more help. It's a very delicate process, and it can be very, it can be very does, difficult. Does, it can be very nerve wracking. Does that fall under your mental health um, algorithm? I should say. Aye. The alg- algae, is that action what plan. The, yeah. Action plan. Aye, the action plan. Yeah, it's so it's, what, it's all about listening non judgmentally. Okay. And listening to what they have to say, and making sure that you know what they have to say is comfortable for them to talk about, but also that you're not force in anything if you try and force somebody if, if somebody like if it looks if it looks very obvious that someone's you know having issues with their weight or issues with exercise or they're depressed or they've got high anxiety especially with people with anxiety if you look like you're trying to force them to talk more than they're willing to talk about it it'll backfire so badly on them um i just want to touch on sport about now because you said that the coping mechanisms like i know a lot of and I don't want to say sports psychologist in case I'm wrong here. I know a lot of people that if they do open up to someone and say they're struggling, like a lot of people would recommend sports as a coping mechanism. Yes? Aye. No. Um, sport and but physical my- activity has been proven to help people with, with at least depression, but as well as other mental health conditions. Yeah. My thing is, what if someone doesn't like the idea of physical exercise or sport? What then would you encourage them to head towards? Because I know sport and physical exercise is a a big one. So if you were to eliminate that there as the person that didn't like it, how then would you approach the situation? Well, actually, my first question would be why they have issues with sport. Because the thing is, we have so many different kinds of sport and all of those sports have so many different levels of professionalism. 
So you might come up to somebody and they go, I don't like sport, but their experience of sport might have been just playing at school, playing football once a week with, you know, the lads in their class, the year above and the year below. And they're used to just getting the shit kicked out of them by the by the bigger, tougher lads. And so uh-huh. if you can maybe encourage them to try a different sport that they might like more. So even if it's something like ultimate frisbee, Quidditch, water polo, something they may have never tried before, but based off of their own interests and what they like doing, there is a good potential there is a sport out there for them. Or if not, just general physical activity, like going to the gym, doing a fitness class, there's always there's always potentially something for them. But in the scenario where they just go, nope, I'm not a physically active person. I have no interest in sport. I don't want to get any better. I don't want to go to a gym. I don't want to exercise. My then main recommendation would be they need some kind of social support outside of sport. They need to find yes. something with other people. They need to find something that interests them, but also there is a group activity for. So if, if they're a real big, big fan of reading, I'd recommend trying to find a book club or something like that. Okay. If they're a big fan, uh, well, if, if they like their coffee, then there might be some sort of a kind of coffee appreciation thing going on there by them or their local coffee shop might be doing like a like a, a members kind of afternoon sort of thing where kind of other people who like to frequent that particular coffee shop can all come in, they sit down, they have a wee chat. Um, often church groups can be quite helpful. I'm not a religious man myself, but it's a very it's a very positive environment. It's a very safe environment. And it's the sort of thing where you can, you can meet very, enjoy, very agreeable, very pleasant people who are more than happy to be supportive. Yeah. Um, see, between amateur and professional athletes, in terms of the psychological characteristics, I know we kind of touched upon it, but what differences do you see between amateur and professional athletes in terms of their psychological like, characteristics? Does that make sense? Uh, no, no, it does make sense. Uh, so... With amateur athletes, you tend to get it, it. The the focus is a lot more on the kind of social enjoyment side of it. So they play sport because they love it. They're part yeah. of they're part of a rugby team because they love playing rugby. Or when they were growing up, they had a huge interest in rugby, and this is their first chance trying to play it. But with amateur athletes, it's more focused on enjoyment, and it's more more of a focus on just you know, it's it's more social. It gets you out the house. It's a method to, you know, stay fit or whatever you know. They, they, they bring up all the, the standard excuses of, you know, it, it go, over to, go, go over to, you know, saying chips, but they're usually there because they love doing it and they, they enjoy doing it. With professionals, there's, I'm not saying they don't enjoy it. Like they're, they're definitely, well, there usually is, and there definitely should be a heavy focus on enjoying the sport that you do. And I feel like things like that are a very important part of addressing the mental health issues that are currently being faced in the more elite sporting areas but they're definitely a lot more driven people. They're a lot more focused. And think, like especially when it comes to kind of talking sports psychology, it's all about relevance. It's all about, you know, useful, important information that they can use to better themselves and better their own performance. In terms of that, professional athletes, like they do it as a job, sort of. Oh, I, I professional athletes, this is, this is their work. And therefore, when it comes to getting a sports psychologist involved, that is someone who's there to help them be better at their job. Yeah, for anyone listening, I don't want to feel like uh, I know a lot about sports psychology. It's something that I studied last year, and it's something I've done a lot of research on towards uh, getting Patty on the show. So if you're listening, thinking, what the hell are we talking about or don't understand it, 
it's not the fact that I know a lot about it. I studied it last year, and now I had to do a lot of research before we got Patty on to make sure that the topics we were talking about and the questions that I was asking made sense in a sense. I know, I, I, I get that. That, that. that is my fault. I am a bit of a nerd on this topic. I absolutely love it. I love my job. I, I love I, doing this work. I, and... I know you do. That's why I wanted to challenge you because I don't want people coming on the show hiding behind a mask. I wanted to challenge you. No, and I'm, I'm more than happy open to open up honest. about everything. So I try to pick the topics that will interest people who are listening. So hopefully that is what is happening. Anyway, um, you have a by the time this podcast will go, Patty, you would have went to a mental health athlete wellbeing workshop seminar in Nottingham. Aye, that's that's happening. I'm I'm going up to uh, a, a a conference being run by a company called uh, the Insing Laboratory, who the entire focus is on is not just addressing but improving what we're currently doing towards athlete well-being and athlete mental health. Because the man who runs it, he is a he's a genuinely fascinating human being. Uh, his name is is Matt Chatter. He works for, he he runs Insting Laboratory. I recommend anybody listening to to check him out, Google him, like look into the work he what's, does. What's his name again, sir? Matt Chatter, C H A W D E R. Yeah, I, I was actually up there uh, a few days ago, like meeting him, talking more about this uh, about this conference and a few other things. He is. Honest to God, one of the most like impressive people I've ever met, and psychologically, that that man is so on the ball. But his his current view about mental health and mental well being in sport is we are not doing enough. The current systems that we have in place are not good enough, and they need to be improved. And that is um, that is the aim of this entire conference is to kind of get in as many kind of people from as many elite areas of sport as possible. And just and just inform them that what we're currently doing needs to be doubled at least. We need to double, triple all our efforts currently when it comes to athlete well-being and athlete welfare. Because the, I mean, well, first and foremost, for the for the kind of companies and the organisations that look after them, they're valuable assets. Like you want to make sure that you know your rugby player, your Olympic sprinter, your you know your your, your swimmer, your cyclist, they're doing the best that they can but also in the safest and healthiest environment possible for them. You want to make sure that this particular individual is going to be a long-term investment for you, but also is going to deliver in the long term. And in order to do that, we need to look after them as people. They, ca- they can't just be seen as, they can't just be seen as kind of like a, as, as, you know, as, as, as tool for, for the organization. They can't be seen as athletes. They need to be seen as people and they need to be looked after as people. And, um- you did say there's a lot of big names, big name people coming to this workshop or seminar, as you like to call it. Um, can you uh, emphasize, emphasize, can you elaborate on who those people are? So anyone who's listening who would like to look into the topic can look into the bigger names and people who come and run seminars? Um, I'm, not sure, I'm, I was gonna say, I'm not sure how much I, I can divulge, but I know for a fact that there's people from UK Sport going, there's people from... Uh, Team GB going, uh, and it, it, it's even going as far as there's uh, a few fellas from uh, the All Blacks. I'm not sure whether they're players, coaches, organizers, whatever, but I know there's people from as far away as the All Blacks are coming to this thing to kind of attend and learn more and present a little bit about athlete well-being and athlete mentality and culture. So it's it's really it, it's going to be a fairly huge event, which is why I'm really surprised that I'm going as well because there's going to be all these 
massive names in sport, and then I'm just going to be stood in the corner being like, hello, I'm here to talk about brains. And everyone's going to look at me being like, okay, so you're here. Are, 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 you, ta- are you talking at the seminar? I am not talking at the seminar. Um, no, I, I'm a little bit, little bit too green for that. I'm a little bit too new to the game. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm there to learn as much as I can and to just absorb all this information and meet all these new people and just do as much networking as possible. But I get the feeling, again, I'm, I'm only 24 and I'm still in my first year doing this. And if I got up on stage and tried to give a lecture on this, every single person in the room would just look at me and go, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, who are you? <laughs> who are you and what are you doing on my stage? Which, again, I wouldn't blame them because, again, I'd be standing up there being like, hi, so this is the first time I've done anything like this before. Last time I gave a presentation, it was in a gym about motivation. It was a good presentation, but it is not for this caliber of people. <laughs> um, I'm actually looking for something as we talk because there was a question I wanted to touch upon, but now I can't find the PowerPoint I worked off last year. <laughs> um I can't remember, I can't find it now. But I wanted to take a, a into the intrinsic and extrinsic, I don't know if you call it extrinsic, but the intrinsic uh, factors, because um, there's a lot of ex- un- extrinsic and social factors. There it is there. Um, for two seconds, now you just load us up. Um, because it's, a lot of people think that uh, depression and all is something that you grow up with, but then again, it is something that can be inherited. Like... Uh, like uh, the situational, like social learning theory, the trait theory, interactional theory. It's oh, like aye. on the per- personality and the person, it's something that can be inherited from where you uh, grew up on. Like, for example, I know, you know where I'm from, back home, there's a, there's social, oh, aye, that, that social lovely, that mental lovely health. part of the world that is Shaban. Yes, you must. <laughs> I'm not going to touch upon that. Uh, that it's, uh, mental health is a massive aspect in our town. But I feel like that's just from where we are from and the opportunities from our town. It's like where you grew up upon. It's like uh, mental health and your personality can be developed. In a sense. Oh, I saw a wee bit of the nature and nurture argument. Yes. Nature, nature and nurture. nurture. Yeah. But I wanted to... I, I wanted to take in the sports psychology, like personality sort of theory as well. I, 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 there is, I think there is a very, there is a very important aspect of kind of um, who you are and what, what you learn from growing up is going to be a fairly important part about your, your general mentality in life. Essentially, everything you learn before the age of 25 is fairly likely going to be the majority of the information, the, the majority of the kind of behaviors and mechanisms that you're going to continue throughout the rest of your life. That's just how the brain works and develops. It's a thing called neuroplasticity, which in the normal person phrasing basically means how, like the brain's ability to change, develop, and kind of create new connections and pathways. After the age of 25, that just grinds to almost a halt, which essentially means that if, if you've learned a particular behavior or a particular mentality before the age of 25, uh, you will not be able to unlearn it or you will really struggle to unlearn it after that age because it'll be that well ingrained into how your brain is designed and developed so i do think that yeah that way like who you are is based a lot upon where you're from the opportunities you've had and the interactions you've had with other people and that that can also reflect upon your coping mechanisms as an individual so if if, if you grew up in a, in a more tough and more kind of 
aggressive environment where kind of different things are expected upon you and your your way of dealing with things was kind of ingrained in a different way. So some people come from from grew up in a lovely sheltered environment where they were told, you know, it, it, you're fine to express yourself in whatever way. If you're having a trouble, you know, there's always going to be somebody who will happily talk to you at length about them. But then there's also people who grew yeah. up in such more kind of rough or tougher environments where it's a case of you can fucking shut up and deal with it. And that's that, that that's nothing wrong with kind of the, the situation they're in. It's not that person's fault. That's just kind of where they are and kind of the, the situation, the problems that people have to deal with is sometimes mental health can be way down the priority list. But that'll definitely help kind of uh, develop you as a person later on in life. Did I answer your question or did that I just a... kind of fire off on one? No, that's all right. Because I know the reason I asked that question is I know from a, uh, a performance psychologist, you would have took it, took it onto uh, a sporting term. Hmm. Like I, do, I know nothing about the brain. So for me, that's something new that I learned. Talking well, not only that, um, this is something actually I only found out quite recently, is that um, the difference between, like, some of the really, like, high-level, like, best athletes in the world, it's been found that the majority of them have had to deal with some fairly traumatic and serious experiences in life, like, growing up young, including things like very, very messy divorces uh, in the childhood, um, abusive parents, stuff like that. Some of the like the more uh, the more successful athletes have had to go not had to but they have gone through that, and what it has done is caused them to be able to deal with pressure and stress in high level sporting situations significantly better. And there's probably a lot yeah. more research to be done on that, but you could potentially argue the case that they've already had to go through very traumatic and very distressing experiences already in life, and that means that when they have to go out and you know do the high jump in front of you know 80,000 people that's nothing it, it, it registers a very low on their stress radar and that could be because of, of how the brain is developed and if anyone wants to know a lot about how the brain works I'd recommend a book called The Chimp Paradox uh, which is it's, it's phenomenal it's a, it's a really good impressive read it's also an audible for those of you who don't like to read like myself but it kind of helps you learn that there are parts of the human brain that due to how we evolved as a species, there is the more basic primal areas, which are literally just concerned with survival, including things like, you know, mating, feeding and avoiding danger. And then there's the more recent stuff, which is the more human aspect, we'd say, which is the more rational, uh, kind of less emotive, but more kind of functioning areas, which, which govern, you know, how modern human society has developed and been so successful and so that's that's yeah. how things like anxiety affect us that the more basic primal part of our brain which you know several hundreds of thousands of years ago its main job was to remember where the fuck you last saw a saber-toothed tiger and to remind you do not go back over there there's a saber-toothed tiger over there we don't have the tiger anymore but that part of the brain still exists and it needs something to worry about it needs something to concern itself with for your survival and therefore, if you've gone through oh. horrendously tra- traumatic experiences, like you've had to deal with abusive, uh, abusive family members or abusive people growing up in your life, uh, you've had to deal with very kind of very dangerous or very traumatic experiences. It means when you do experience the later trauma of having to perform in front of a huge crowd of people, it doesn't register on the same level as it does to people who haven't had to go through that sort of thing. 
because that part of your brain hasn't had to deal with that, hasn't had to to factor and process those more traumatic experiences, especially as a child. Like imagine, imagine as a very small child having to deal with an, an, an abusive uncle or something who, you know, would just come in and beat you when he's had too many drinks. Like imagine having to deal with that, how traumatic that would be growing up. And that's kind of one of the earliest memories. And then later on going out in front of a crowd of people, what would you, what would you even have to be scared of? You'd have nothing to be worried about. And that's, yeah, just I, I want to bring us into the sport aspect, as you said. I don't know if you watch a lot of basketball. Oh, I watch it every now and then. Do you, I don't know if you know Giannis. I can't oh, the, uh, oh, the Greek much. freak. Oh, yes. that dude is magical. That dude. Yeah, on on that, when you say suffered uh, through his childhood, I don't think it affects him to play in front of that because of the town they grew up in in, in Nigeria. There's days having his brother and all went to school. Without, without food, would go days without like, eating and all. And then, like when they moved to America, he was living the fear of being deported by the place. So, like he suffered a traumatic childhood from his parents and everything. Oh, right. They they never had ends meet, and just now because he's such a a top class athlete, probably one of the best. Oh, right. he he's he's, able he's, to he's do... the cover of the latest um the two K nineteen basketball game. Like he. He, he's, yeah. he's, that's, that's how good he is. He's the cover man for basketball and for the NBA at the moment. And that's because, like, again, questionably, the, the, the worries that, and, that any of us would have when you're standing there in front of, like, I mean, I panic enough when I'm trying to take a three-point shot because I'm terrible at basketball. But for him, <laughs> for him in a, in, in a stadium full of people, you know, attempting a three-point shot, that's nothing. He's had to hide from the authorities. He's had to struggle, you know, to, to make ends meet on his own, let alone with his parents. So the, the the level of stress that you'd have to deal for just putting a ball into a basket, that's nothing for him. And it's the same with um, not the latest um, English fella to get signed for the NFL, but the fella before him who played for, is it the Panthers who got like rookie MVP last year in one of his games because he he you know got many sacks and got turnovers and stuff like that. And he he's also um, I I, I can't remember his name, but he he got rookie of the year no rookie of the week in his first game playing for them. And then I found out a wee bit about his backstory. And, you know, he was he was homeless in London after moving, after uh, pretty much um, getting smuggled from Nigeria himself. Like, he, he got, you know, smuggled from Nigeria into this country and then lived homeless on the streets for years and then started playing American F- football. F.A.O.B.A.K.A. fella. I wasn't even going to try and pretend to pronounce his name. I just as you said, I don't want to see who he was. Hi, yeah. him. I'm not even going to attempt it. But yeah, no, he, he's, he's had to deal with things like that. He's had to deal with, you know, kind of like smuggling himself into the country, living homeless for a few years. And then he discovered American football. And I think he played for either the London Blitz or London Warriors and got signed for the NFL. And now he's probably got a very, very sparkling career ahead of him. Yeah, he's, he's still only 27, so just... Oh, God. What... what... I know, which is freaky. It says here he became the first international player to go straight from an American football European league, the GB Aye. league, to the to the NFL without playing college football. I'm really glad I never that... played him. Now I'm really glad I never had to play him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm actually surprised. Let's go yeah. Did you not play? Him? No, no, I never played a London team. Damn. Uh, right, we kind of fell off topic a bit here. I um, mean, somewhat, just a wee bit. Just it, still, I hope it was still relevant. <laughs> um, but I, I still have a couple more topics I wanted to touch on. 
and they're coming from a strength conditioning point, point of view. Right. Do you feel like coaches don't employ sports psychologists because they expect the strength conditioning coach to be the player's sports psychologist while they're training him? If that makes sense. I don't know. I think I think if if you're a coach and you hire an S and C fella and you expect him to be able to do sports psychology, that's not saying he doesn't have the potential to do it, and that's not saying he may not have the training for it. But to expect your S and C fella. To also be a psychologist is, is is a very bad call because the requirements for you know what a person physically needs and what a person mentally needs are two drastically different things. But then again, in theory, you know uh, uh, the best coaches also know a lot about psychology and know how to get the best out of their players anyway. Yeah, I mean theoretically, with the right training, you could have one fella run an entire sports team. To perfect efficiency, looking after all the players in the best in the best way. And though that's not ideal. Not no, it's not ideal. Um, you you do need support. You do need other people. But um, I I'm yet to come across any coaches who have assumed that the S and C uh, coach can also do sports psychology. I think from well from my personal experience, there's there's a good amount of respect for sports psychology and sports psychologists and what they can bring to a team, what they really bring to the game. Um, currently, most of the teams that I work with, it's a very new, uh, it's a very new service in this part of the world because ju- just because there's not the same level of sport competition and there's not the same kind of available resources that every team can have a psychologist, which does often mean that I get fairly underused by a few of my, uh, a few of my clients, but, Again, that's because that, that that's, that's just because some people don't see it as a priority, and some people don't know what it has the potential to do. Uh, what do you think the future is then for sports psychology and sport? I, after that I think it's going to be a grow. I think it's going to be a, a, fa- a fairly aggressively growing profession. I think as more and more people accept the fact that mentality and psychology is is such an important aspect of not just performance but athlete welfare and just general life welfare. It's it it it's already in the process of growing more and more, but I think it's something that it's it's going to become more uh, more prevalent and more important. I think also sports psychology is going to probably start shifting quite a bit towards clinical psychology as well, because it's it's not just about you know the analysis of the players and the organizational aspect. That is something I do, and that's a part of my job. I do quite a lot of work analyzing players. I do quite a lot um, discussing. With um, with coaches, with committees, and kind of ha- helping them generally get the best out of their players from kind of a managerial perspective, but it's the one-on-one stuff which kind of sways more towards the realm of counselling. That one I enjoy doing the most because that's when I actually get to feel like I I make a, a difference to somebody, but also too it's when I feel like I get to actually do the most work with somebody and I get to really help somebody get the most benefit out of sports psychology when. You can really narrow it down to the individual, find out what's actually their personal issues, not just in performance, but in general, and help them work their way through them and help them improve upon themselves in order to get the best out of themselves. Do you feel like every team should uh, employ a sports psychologist, amateur and professional? I feel I, I feel like every professional team should have a sports psychologist, and I'd I'd be surprised if there's if there's not a, a professional team like a really professional team that doesn't have a a sport or performance psychologist. 
I think when it comes to amateurs, there's probably not the money for every single team to have their own uh, sports psychologist. However, it should be something that just the league in general should be looking into. As in, like, I, I, I currently work with one team in a league uh, for, for, for a women's rugby team. Um, if, if, if I was to expand more and really kind of, and, and if sports psychology in general was to expand more, then I think maybe currently at the stage we're at with the resources and available psychologists that we have, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea for just the league in general to hire one or two sports psychologists and then teams can, you know, pick, you know, uh, request them at different times when they're having either issues with uh, specific players or if the entire team in general needs it, then they could, you know... Um, but do you feel like having a sport, two or three sports psychologists per league of, say, 16 teams... That would do you think like that's not going to be beneficial because the players would want to talk to someone who'd be around the children who would understand their personal life more than someone who's just coming from the league outside on. Sometimes actually having somebody from outside can be more can be very beneficial. Quite a lot of the people that I work with, they will tell me things about uh, either their personal life or their uh, sporting life, and they will say it's quite nice to talk to somebody who is completely disconnected and who's got who's got nothing to do has no influence on how on on how this situation will will play out especially for personal life things but but some sorry i was just uh, i've been told about myself but um having somebody from outside can actually be beneficial because it feels like it, it sometimes it does feel less personal but also it can mean that you feel more safe and more secure kind of disclosing different information yeah, if that makes sense. But but no, there there will always be the greater advantage of somebody who is around more often, who is unique to the team, and that only they get to use them. I just think currently, if we were to, if 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 sports psychology was to become more of a necessity at the current state we're at, and at the financial state that most kind of grassroots and amateur teams are at, you wouldn't be able to have you know a psychologist for everybody in the same way that you have a physio for every team. Or, or, or yeah. for every club. Um, I think as, as a stepping stone to that, it would be a, it would be a good idea for, you know, just kind of, if, if there was a league of 16 teams or if there's a league of eight teams or whatever, if you have, you know, a, a, you know, a couple of psychologists, so you have one per, you know, three to four teams. I mean, they could, they could always just go, right, so for like, so first week of this month, I'm with this team, second week I'm with this team, third week I'm with this team, fourth week I'm with that team, and I'll just cycle through that. That, that yes. could be a potential option. Um, or it could just be, you know, I'll be there on request. So if anyone needs me, you, you contact me and I'll be there for the next training session. Um, and as long as you keep up to date with how the team's going, who's who's talking to who, who's friends with who, who's, you know, got issues with this person, who, you know, made selection last week and who didn't make selection last week. As long as you keep up to date with everything, it, it should work perfectly smoothly. Um, one of the things I want to touch upon just uh, before we end up finishing this, and um, you see a lot of people stop exercising once they get to a certain age or they start shying away from team sports and heading towards more individual sports or just leaving sports in general. Do you think that's sort of like the expectations and the mental health side of things? Uh, I actually, well, I've, I've been very interested to hear how many times you said the word expectations over the course of this podcast because... Um... I've been developing a, a mindfulness training program uh, specifically designed for sport and exercise and athletes and coaches 
uh it, it's not my own original design it is it's 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 very heavily based off of um mindful sport performance enhancement which is an existing mental training program done by some people who are a lot cleverer than me but um they talk a lot about expectations and how you know the the collection and the kind of maintenance of specific expectations about not only your own performance but also about uh you know competitive situations causes serious psychological distress but in the realms yeah. of people kind of separating away from either separating away from sport or going into more kind of individual non-team sports because of expectations about either mental health or their own ability well when it, when it comes to people just stopping sport in general there can be several factors to that it can be mental health reasons it can be they just don't play the game as well as they used to and they're stepping down because they're not they're not getting the games and they like there's other people who are younger and better coming through and their ego just can't take it uh or you know they're just like you know what i'm gonna let i'm gonna let the younger ones have their time and i'm gonna bow out gracefully while i still can uh or something that can just be that they just don't enjoy it anymore and whatever reason people do find breaking away from sport it, it it's always sad because it's it, it's very important to stay active and stay healthy um but I think breaking away from sport in general is not always going to be the best thing for some people. And sometimes moving from team sports to individual sports. So instead of playing rugby all the time now, you just, you know, keep up your gym schedule, keep active and stay fit. That's always a good thing. And so it's, it's always going to be grand. And as long as you keep up your connections with your friends and your team, you're still going to get all the same benefits that you had when you were playing sport and when you were in the team. But now we just kind of, Maybe less expectations on you, especially about your performance, especially about kind of how you're meant to either how you're meant to behave with with the team, or maybe how um, or maybe how uh, you'd have to kind of dedicate more and more of your time to something. So again, breaking away from indiv- breaking away from team sports to individual sports isn't always a terrible thing, and for some people, it's the best choice. Yeah, I I, I know because I've done it myself. I've broke away from Gaelic and all and just started going to the gym for my own benefit. But it wasn't because of mental health. It was because I wanted to, well, you could say I was a butt. I was like, I wanted to get under the gym, put earphones on and escape reality sort of thing. Oh, it's the cheapest form of therapy. Yeah, that's what, that's what I enjoy doing. No, and I did the same thing in my teenage years. I was not a very, I was not an athletically gifted kid. I was a very small, I was a very skinny kid, and watching me play rugby was goddamn hilarious, I'll be honest. And what happened? Oh, I just got the shit kicked out of me. But, so, about the age of about, kind of, 13, 14, I stopped playing team sports, because it was really obvious I wasn't very good at them. And I went to the gym a lot, and I pretty much started off going to the gym once or twice a week for about 15 minutes a time. And then over the next kind of few years, that built up more and more until I was going four to seven times a week for at least an hour to an hour and a half each session. And then the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed it, the more I, I spent time learning about, you know, physical training, physical activity, how best to kind of build different muscle groups, how best to maintain different muscle groups, how best to train myself. I did also found it really beneficial to just be able to shut the world out for a time because Again, that was when I was dealing with quite a bit of bullying at school. It was really good to just get in the gym, headphones on, listen to my own music, 
hang up with just the other people who go to the gym for usually similar reasons and just escape it all for a few hours. And that was always very beneficial for me. And then when I came out the other side, you know, a lot, a lot, you know, a lot more physically developed, a lot more stronger, a lot better at sports, a lot more athletic. When I actually did get back into sports after spending all that time, like focusing on me and getting myself not just physically better, but mentally better. I found I enjoyed sports a lot more. And I actually just, I actually discovered a love for sports. I, if you'd asked me age 16, 17, do you like sports? I'd have told you which way to fuck off in. But yeah, 18, 19, 20-odd, you'd ask me how much I love sports. I would have gone, you know what? Good crack. I love it. You know, it's, 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 it's a grand time. Nowadays, you ask me if I love sports, my first question would be which one, followed by yes. Yeah. There, there are very few sports I either haven't tried or haven't tried something similar to. I, I, I'm fairly kind of proud of the fact that I can, I can provide at least some amount of, of, of competitiveness in, in most areas of sport and I can find enjoyment in them as well. I, I like to challenge myself, I like to push myself, and I like to try out new things because everyone does a particular sport for a reason and each of that reasons because it's good fun and it's always good to kind of get the opportunity to experience that yourself. Hell, I even tried um, playing Quidditch one time. That was a fun afternoon. How did that go? Um, yeah, it turns out you're not supposed to throw balls at people. <laughs> and also, apparently, you're not supposed to rugby tackle the snitch, but I still won, didn't I? <laughs> um, I'm surprised you haven't actually played Gilead Club. Uh, no, I think it's too much running for me. <laughs> <laughs> Although, when, um, I, when I'm doing my Masters, I spend a lot of time hanging out with the, uh, with the Irish Society of that university. And pretty much every time I turned up, they'd be like, so do you want to try Gaelic then? I'd be like, no. Like, oh, you'd be grounded at go on. And I look at the side of you, but you'd be class. And I'm like, no, it's too much running and I don't run. <laughs> I just stand. <laughs> I stand and look, um, I stand, look pretty and then hit people. You what? I stand, I look pretty and then I hit people. It's kind of my thing. No comment. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's your yes. <laughs> Um, is there any other topics you want to touch upon yourself before we finish up? Um, I think Anything the only, thing, only thing I'd like to say before we kind of finish up is uh, to anybody listening to uh, this podcast, if you yourself are struggling with mental health issues, uh, it might seem really tough. It might seem really hard. And you might not be 100% sure yourself if you are going through something. But there's, there's, there's absolutely no shame. There's nothing wrong with talking to somebody about them. And don't forget just like just because somebody may say they've been through something worse that doesn't mean it makes what you're going through any less okay so mental health conditions are very subjective and they're very unique to the individual so what is affecting you is is very is, is important to you and you need to look after yourself the most important thing a friend of mine ever did was to tell me that they weren't able to deal with my issues and that I need to see somebody who was more professional and who could help me deal with them properly. And I, to this day, still thank that person for doing that to me. But the important thing was that I felt safe enough to reach out and talk about these things and they helped me get the support that I needed. So again, so to anybody out there who either may be dealing with something, thinks they're dealing with someone, something, or is just worried about it, there's nothing wrong with just talking to somebody, whether it's a friend, a colleague, a parent, or just your roommate. The best thing you can do is to talk about it. And also, ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking to talk to a professional about it, 
there are mental health Ireland back home in Ireland you can contact on a free listening line and an advice advice centre and there also if you're listening in Wales there's a mental health helpline for Wales which offer community advice and listening line and then if you're listening back home in Straban there is the Quorum Centre which do a lot of work and they will listen to you talk they are professionals and they're um, profession and they uh, shall help. They will help you out if you'd like to open up and talk to a professional about it. If you don't, make sure and open up and talk to a friend of yours about it. Um, Paddy, thank you very much for coming on, mate. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's been a pleasure, as always, Paddy. Um, ladies and gentlemen, that's up for episode four. If you do like the podcast, make sure and subscribe to whatever listening platform there you're listening to it on. And I shall see you on the next episode next Monday. Tara.